0: Everybody, welcome to the business Finance Friday webinar. With me today, I've got Magnus Haystick
1: and Candice Payne. They're both independent financial advisors. Uh, welcome to you both. And uh, Magnus, I see you won another award this week.
2: Well, thank you very much for mentioning that, uh, Jackie. Yes, it's like the Oscars in the investment world, and they're the the IntelliX Annual uh, Wealth Manager Awards of the Year. And you've got two categories: one for the big guys, and one for the boutique guys, where we play in. And I'm glad to say we won the Best Boutique Wealth Manager of the Year Award. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, well, congratulations. And then we've also got Candace. Candace is, in, um, is a former BizNews uh, reporter, so but Candice has this wealth of uh, financial expertise. So Candace, do you want to just tell us a bit about your background?
0: Sure, Jackie. Thanks so much. Nice to be here today. My background is actually in asset management. So I spent a lot of time at Sunlam Asset Management. I know Magnus is not a fan of the large insurance companies. Um, and having spent time there and seeing that clients or independent people really needed good advice, I moved over to start my own business, which is what I did a while ago. Hey, great. Well, welcome to you both. So as you can hear, we're in
1: great hands here. Uh, so I'm going to let's kick off first with... um. Magnus, we've had a lot of questions on retirement annuities over the last couple of weeks and um, you've produced some very interesting graphs here uh, and I wonder if we can just quickly talk through those before we kick off with some of the questions.
2: Well, just the background is, you know, retirement annuities and pension funds, preservation funds are bound by Regulation 28 of the uh, Pensions Act so they can only get 30% offshore the balance has to be in the local market, and that's been, a case, that's been the case since 2011. As a result of the poor performance of our local equity market, that has been having a major impact on the growth rates of the traditional retirement annuities, or in fact all retirement annuities. And I, I just took this out as an example, and I'm not picking on anybody, that's why I'm not publishing the name, but there's an um, um, a, a retirement annuity fund of one of the insurance companies where after five years relative to inflation you're down 30 percent you you made no money in five years in fact you have lost five percent of your money over a five-year period and you can go through all of the uh, returns some are better uh, this is this is partic- this is probably the worst one i've seen so there's a there's a little bit of a crisis developing in people who rely on the traditional methods to fund their retirement. That graph shows it very clearly. So there's been no growth, and in fact you're down thirty percent, and and that is starting to become a major talking point. People are are, are questioning their RAs, they're demanding answers, and they're demanding returns, and um, this uh, is 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 affecting a lot of people in their retirement, their retirement projections from five or 10 years ago are out by about 30 to 40% in real terms. And it's, it's combined with, you know, the COVID collapse and the, uh, and the bad property market, most people are now severely underfunded, not because they haven't been putting money in, it is because the instrument that they're using is busy failing them. And, 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 and you, can, you can clearly see that.
1: Really frightening because we've been encouraged to invest in RAs, you know, from the day we start working, we're encouraged to set aside money because it's uh, there's a tax incentive. What do people do with their money in an RA? Isn't it stuck?
2: Well, they, they can they can change the asset allocation. And when I say this, and I've been saying this for a while, if this doesn't change, cash is not a bad way to protect your money or even bonds. But we need to change Regulation 28, we need more offshore. And um, um, if you're over 55, there are other ways to get more offshore exposure by actually pulling out your money, getting your tax-free portion into your pocket and then reallocating your funds into more offshore or better performing funds. But this is quite severe and I think if you look at the performance of the large pension funds, not as bad as this but I get guys who send me their pension fund statements and they haven't made money in five years. Uh, And the media doesn't talk about it. They either under-resourced or they're too scared to talk about it. Um, But we need to talk about it. There's a massive crisis in retirement funding developing for the middle class to upper class in our society.
1: Scary. Candice, what are you seeing in your practice? What is your experience of uh, people who have RAs?
0: The last five years have been particularly difficult from a South African equity market point of view. So it's not only people's RAs but their discretionary investments would also have been underperforming to this extent. It doesn't mean that every Reg 28 fund underperformed. There are a handful who have actually done particularly well through that period who've kept the 30% offshore exposure at 100%. And they've also been invested far more in fixed interest instruments, which is where you have seen um, I w- uh, returns above equities for that period. One of the things you must remember, in your retirement annuities, there's no tax, there's no capital gain tax, so you can actually change the asset allocation um, over time, which, has been, which is very useful. So the tax element is something that we probably need to discuss because a lot of people are asking whether the tax saving is worth the restrictions of being in a Reg 28 portfolio. Um, Reg 28 is a conundrum for South African investors. But I think if you have asset managers who are looking at squeezing out alpha in um, different ways, you can still outperform. So, for example, if you'd held 30% offshore in a global equity portfolio, which brings risk into your portfolio, and 70% in a South African fixed interest portfolio with longer dated securities over the period, you would have done probably north of 8% a year, which is infinitely better than the slide that Magnus is um, showing us. We're now sitting in an an environment where interest rates have come down precipitously, um, which helps people with debt, but doesn't help people who are trying to save and who have moved their money into interest rate instruments. So you need a very nimble asset manager who can find alpha um, within those constraints and they are available. That's the one thing that you need to think about for your RA. If you have no trust in that system, um, then you do need to think about either stopping the contributions to your retirement annuity because your retirement annuity is the one pension fund vehicle that actually has restrictions on withdrawal as well. So where Magnus is saying your preservation funds, you can take and um, the the one third and, and um, the rest can have an asset allocation portion. You could also take the whole lot and pay the tax but with the RA you actually can't. So some of the conversations I'm having with clients is do you want to um, stop or decrease contributions to RAs and maybe take that contribution because the onus is still on you to save and get some offshore exposure with the extra contribution which would then give you a kicker in the total portfolio. That does come down to the discipline, though, which is always an issue.
1: It's very interesting you say, look for a nimble asset manager. I don't see too many of those at the moment, but could, perhaps you could name some. Magnus?
2: I, I think there's a slight, uh, um, um, Jackie, uh, Candice is absolutely 100% correct, and we, we didn't rehearse this before the time. The decision as to the asset allocation depends on the financial advisor who has to be a more than nimble or the owner of the product. When you're in a fund and it's not performing, the fund manager has got no responsibility towards you. That fund manager must merely stick to the mandate of the fund. And, and a lot of clients don't fully understand this. They often say, but why don't the fund managers change their investment strategy? You have to explain to them, the fund manager is beholden to a specific mandate, which is in the uh, fund fact sheets or the document, and they will invest according to their mandate you as a, an investor and more importantly your uh, advisor is the one that needs to be nimble and going to find um those funds and Dennis is quite correct there are a number of smaller funds that have done very well you're going to go and find them and then take and, and put your clients into that if you're if you're allowed to do that so it's 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 more a reflection on the advisory industry that they just tell their clients, oh, don't worry, it's long-term, don't, don't panic, it, it'll come right. It's, it's the more independent advisors I would suggest are the ones who get involved and say, no, 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 let's change it because it's not going anywhere. Great,
0: thank I you. Uh, well, well, sorry, I can you continue? I completely agree with Magnus that the role of the financial advisor is to vet the value chain. That is why we're being paid and that is why people come to us because we are closer to the ground than, than they are. Um, In terms of the mandate that a particularly a Reg 28 fund has, yes, it is stipulated. The fund has to invest within the Reg 28 guidelines. But just like you get better and worse doctors, better and worse mechanics, you get better and worse asset managers, and some of them really have been able to add superior value within the constraints of that. And so for a client sitting on the outside looking in, they need to understand and trust that their um, advisor can find those. And that's what we get paid to do to stay close to the market to stay close to the asset managers to understand their processes and their philosophies so that we can do the best for our clients and it's not only the asset manager it's also the vehicle that you put it in so we need to understand the the, um, constraints the tax consequences everything about the investment because that's what we are being paid to do and and so that's not happening you probably do need to look at your financial advisor and ask them those questions as well, because that's our job to vet the value chain. Thank you. So we've got a question here from
1: James who says, is it possible to transfer a closed RA from provider to provider? He says, I have two from a previous employer, which I would like to move and merge. Is that possible, Magnus?
2: Yes, it is. It's a bit of a cumbersome process. And I think it's called a section 37 transfer, a lot of paperwork. There might be some uh, slight penalties involved, but yes, you can move it. And uh, I've done it with my own RAs, for instance, moving them from the big ones to a much more smaller and nimble. And then I can choose my own funds and I've done far better than with the old style. And and that's what I've also been recommending to our clients uh, that the minute you're over 55, seriously consider getting your money into a living annuity where you can get 100 percent offshore allocation. As an example, my living annuity uh, returned uh, 37% in the last year. Our stock market has given you zero. So uh, people need to get involved in their pension funds, retirement annuity funds, and speak to an independent financial advisor.
0: Thank you. Candice, do you have anything to add to that? Yes. So the transferring of RAs, there are a couple of things that you need to... Um, note when you do a Section 14 transfer is that it takes a long time. It can take up to 180 days. And and so you can be out of the market for 180 days when you make that decision. I'm not saying don't make the decision, just understand the the details of the decision. Um, The penalties come in if you have an old-style RA. So we have new generation RAs and old-style generations, and some of those penalties can be quite onerous. And so you would need somebody to look into that or deal with the company and ask them, because sometimes it's not worth um, taking the penalty, it may be worth changing the underlying um, investment options that you that you have um, in the RA. So, completely agree with Magnus, move your RA if you feel it's the best thing to do, but just take note of, of those kind of things, because the thing that you can control in investing is the timing, and the time that you invest for, and the costs. Um, and obviously, the tax as well so so be aware of that
1: great, thank you and then Zukisa says, kindly ask Candace why are advisors reluctant to recommend etfs and index tracking unit trusts are they are they reluctant
0: no um, i'm I'm a big fan of etf's and index tracking unit trusts, so some of it might have been around access you know we as advisors use a lot of what is called the um, linked investment service providers. They're the platforms. So think of it as sort of a a shop and pick and pay where all the coffee sits. It's a shop where all the funds sit and we can pick and choose the funds that we want people to invest in. And for a very long time the ETFs have not been available on those platforms because of administration restrictions, not because the ETF was a poor product. And um, one of the companies, Satrix, actually did um, issue unit trusts so you could go into index tracking funds on one of those platforms. But in fact, it's evolved and the ETFs are now available more and more on the platforms and they are a great way to get cost effective access to asset classes or regions in your portfolio. So I think that advisors on are, are less and less um, reluctant to, to recommend ETFs and I certainly do use them in my portfolios. Thank you, Magnus. What is your view
1: on ETFs and unit trusts?
2: Oh, absolutely. 100% agree. I mean, we use. Increasingly, more and more ETFs, uh, uh, especially on the on the offshore side. I mean, our global equity fund is uh, 100% ETFs uh, using Vanguard and BlackRock, and you can get them very, very cheaply. Um, so now, once again, my my, my stress is on the world independent, and I, f- I think a lot of the tied agents, the embedded agents, will are forced to recommend their high-cost uh, products to their clients. Uh, for obvious reasons, and, and um, you know, as independents, we, we get paid by our clients, we don't, we don't get paid by anybody else but our clients, and they, they're very much sensitive about pricing and costs and they're not stupid, and if you try and sell them a, a very expensive product, they will walk away, so we've been using it for a very long time.
1: Thank you, in fact, a lot of questions coming through are about what is an independent financial advisor. So how do you actually know if you're in the hands of an independent financial advisor? What are the questions you ask, Candice?
0: First of all, it's around the registration. So if um, you represent a big company, you know, so you sort of, so traditionally, they've been old mutual, Sunland, Liberty, they're called Tide Agents. And they're a sales force out there to sell the products. Um, some of the products that those companies sell, we would use too. From a, from a risk point of view, Glacier is, is a fantastic list and where you can use the products. But if somebody is employed by those big companies, then it stands to reason that they can only sell those products. But For example, the value add that Magnus and I would bring to the table is that we can look across all the products out there in the market, all the platforms, all the products, all the underlying funds, and make a decision as to what we think is best. For the client, and then we can direct the client into those vehicles. So we're not restricted in what we are able to do for a client.
1: Thank you. Magnus, anything to add to that?
2: Yes, I think the regulatory bodies are also trying to define clearly who is a tied agent. And and as Candice said, you work for a certain company, and they have to now declare I work for XYZ company, and I can only give you advice on that company's products. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to declare it. The second one is the independent agents who are not uh, in, in that restricted space. They can go out and they can offer virtually any product in the market. And they, they then allow to say, I am an independent financial advisor, which is a very good thing because a lot of people have been walking around saying, I'm independent, independent. But you end up placing all your business with one company, which is uh, slightly dishonest in many ways.
1: Thank you. And then Ronelle has a follow-up question. Are there independent advisors who just charge an advice fee? So, for example, if I want to invest in ETFs, but I'm willing to pay for guidance only, or where the advisor gets a performance fee? Candice, how how do the fees work, and can you just pay a small fee for uh, a tip?
0: Yes, so that's that's up to the advisor. So you can approach an advisor and say, I want an um, advice-only appointment, and you can negotiate and structure around that advisors don't earn performance fees as far as I know we earn ongoing advice fees um, for the relationship that we build up over time um, and the ongoing monitoring of the underlying um, portfolio but absolutely there's there's nothing stopping you going to an advisor and, and you know saying what you want and paying for it
1: Thanks. And then Jonathan says, financial advisors charge a fee whether you make a gain or not. I have a large problem with this. However, I would rather pay an extra percentage on performance. This is a win win agreement, he says. What do you think, Magnus, about performance fees?
2: Well, uh, the, there's no real merit in that argument. And we do get people from time to time saying, well, the funds have gone down, but you're still taking a, a fee. I mean, you even have it with asset managers who will take the performance fee although they've lost money but they've outperformed the benchmark which determines whether they can uh, take fees or not so it's a it's, it's a slightly tricky uh, um, question you can you can agree with your advisor so listen i'll pay you a higher percentage performance fee we'll set the benchmark and a year or two later you two will sit down and work it out and then and if we had done it in our practice we would have made far more money but it's a very complex um, calculation to do for every single client to work out what was the benchmark what was the outperformance what was the percentage fee worldwide most people 90 percent to 95 percent of ifa practices are very happy you pay a fee uh, based on on the growth of the assets they realize that markets can go down uh, and, and they're not going to blame the advisor and say i'm not going to pay you because there was a COVID market crash or there was a a 2008 crash I mean most advisors or most clients understand that and they're willing to pay for that but as Candice has said we often get people say just do an assessment of all my stuff pay me an amount and I'll pay you an amount of money and we do that to me send them a bill like a lawyer and um they'll go away or come back
0: Candice what do you think about the performance fee question I'm with Magnus on this. I mean, one of the things is that it's an incredibly difficult thing to, to calculate. But I think what perhaps clients don't realize is the ongoing work that you are constantly doing in the background in terms of information gathering um, and, and acquiring knowledge, which you then are implementing into their portfolios on an ongoing basis. The other thing is that it's not just about investment performance. Financial planning is about the structure of your entire, your kind of holistic financial life. And and we are constantly looking at that to moving clients maybe slowly into the right position because they've got, lucky for them, big capital gains tax problems, or they can't move money immediately, or they're waiting, you know, they've used up the exchange control restrictions, and we're going to be doing that slowly over time. So there's an administrative function that is um, involved in the financial planning as well, which which requires payment so I'm um, yeah I can't I can't disagree with Magnus on the way that we run our, our practices.
1: It's quite interesting because you obviously do a lot of work behind the scenes and people don't necessarily think about that when they pay for their advice. Uh, Julian has this question which t- touches on the first slides that you showed us uh, Magnus and this is he wants to know why has local why have the local equity markets performed so badly when the top 40 companies seem to earn the bulk of their earnings from offshore assets?
2: But that's a little bit of a fallacy that in the bulk, it's true to a certain extent, there's about 30% of companies who earn most of their assets uh, or their earnings offshore, but remember they're still bound or exposed to local market conditions. I'll give you a mine as an example, a gold mine, it, makes, it produces gold, sends it offshore and gets paid, but it has electricity issues, it has labour issues, it has infrastructure issues, and that too, you know, it's a long, long argument, but in a nutshell, the, the macroeconomic environment in South Africa in the last five years has been horrendous. So whether you you know, export stuff and get paid in dollars, your costs relative to your competitor in the United States and in Canada is much higher in many cases. So you might be competing in the same space, but your competitor is making 10 Rand profit per unit, but you're only making five Rand profit per unit because of electricity or labour or water or whatever the issue is so the investment industry has gone out selling the idea that the top 40 is mostly offshore and that's not it's simply not true you can look at the performance of the top 40 relative to the MSCI world index or any index our local macroeconomic situation has pulled us quite down and if you strip NOSPAS for instance out of our market performance and you look at the mid caps and the small caps, I mean, that's been a bloodbath as far as profitability is concerned. So our market has been driven downwards by two things in my view. First of all, there's been a flood of foreign capital flowing out of the markets since 2013, and the graphs show it. And secondly, our profitability of listed companies on the JSE as a percentage of GDP has been declining from about 11 to 12 percent down to about six percent now that's a horrible decline uh and that's why our companies are where they are on the market Uh, it's been driven downwards by real things profitability and the foreign money which has been boosting our market for a long time has just gone elsewhere and correctly they've gone elsewhere because they've made phenomenal money in the us and technology and in other parts of the world so that's why our market is, is so down and hence our performance is so poor.
1: Thank you. A question here for Candace. Henry asks, How can I get access to the Vanguard ETFs without transferring my funds overseas first? Is there a way?
0: Short answer you can't. Um, you have to if you want to invest in um Vanguard or um directly into iShares, which is a BlackRock's ETF offering, you do need to transfer your funds offshore. But what some of the um, ETF providers in South Africa have done is they have made uh, a lot of those ETFs available and listed them on our Johannesburg Stock Exchange. So they are called what is called RAND-denominated ETFs. So you take your RANDs, you invest it in the um, ETF, the money is then taken offshore well, thank and your you're mind. getting the offshore. Sorry, breaking up a bit there, Candice. Which bit didn't you hear? Uh, the <laughs> Sorry, line. shall I stop? Yeah, okay, so you are you are able to access some of the iShares um, through Satrix wrappers. So what a local company, Satrix, has done is they have um, some of their offshore ETFs. In fact, the new China one that they've just listed is an iShares um, fund in there, the MSEIs and iShares fund in there. So you, if you look down into the fund fact sheets of various ETF providers, you can get access to offshore ETF providers, but not Vanguard.
2: Yeah, Vanguard is just not listed on the, on the local market, but you can get equivalent funds uh, via. Uh, uh, Signia have launched a couple of very exciting and low cost funds that are doing exceptionally well uh, in the fourth industrial revolution. The FANGs, the S&P 500, and they, you know, launched that OSI fund, which is quite exciting. So, you, you, I think you've got enough equivalent products with Centrics, with Signia, with Easy Equities. You will find them in here. If you want Vanguard specifically, uh, you need to remit your money into dollars and go and buy it on an offshore platform.
1: Which brings us to Heinz's question or, or observation. He says that direct overseas investments tend to be prohibitively expensive. What do you think the minimum amount of money is that you need to have to make offshore investing viable from a, from a cost perspective,
0: Candice? The costs have come down a lot um, and access has been made a lot easier for South African investors if you're wanting to actually physically remit your money offshore and invest it um, wherever you want. So, if, for example, if you wanted to invest in the Vanguard or in iShares, their their fees are quite low. You play. Oh, a- well, I think we've lost Candice but- again. Magnus, oh.
1: Magnus uh, do, would, do, could you pick up yeah, that I question? Yeah, I You know,
2: it, it's 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 a function of, of of two things. First of all, the the offshore investment companies and platforms in particular. I've always demanded a certain minimum uh, dollar amount, whether it's $10,000 or $15,000. But because the RAND has dropped so much, I mean, 10 years ago, you could buy $10,000 with 60,000 RAND. Now it's going to cost you 180,000 RAND. So it's a function of the RAND that has dropped. And the offshore companies, because of the fairly large amount of admin to do to money laundering, checking, and all that kind of stuff, Do not deal with small amounts of money and they also don't deal with debit order stuff like we used to in South Africa. So that seems to make it more expensive, but it's not. If you actually analyze the cost structures of offshore funds, especially ETFs, it's actually on par, if not cheaper than in South Africa.
1: Thank you. Now, Pete is asking you to both look into your crystal ball. And he wants to know, do you think there is a global market correction in the near future when earnings are declared post-COVID?
0: Candice, are you back with us? Would you like to try would you like to answer that one? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, yes, okay. um the short answer is who knows, So both Magnus and I have no foresight or insider knowledge about what the market is going to do. What we can do is look at the trends currently that are out there, and yes, there's every possibility that we could have another pullback um The c- cases of coronavirus are spiking around the world. The entire um, globe is completely indebted. We have seen people's spending patterns change um, precipitously through this period. Um, and yes, we might very well have a stock market correction because economies seem to be completely decimated and stock markets seem to still go up. That's not to say that you should take all your money out of the market. You should start looking at areas where, or your fund managers start looking at areas where we can still see earnings growth and see where the money is flowing to there. There are a lot of trends globally at the moment um, that are bound to make a lot of money in the years to come. And they may not be in the places that we have historically invested our money. So short answer is, I don't know. Long answer is the probability is high. Thank you. I know you you don't have a crystal
1: ball, Magnus, but what are you sort of reading from trends?
2: You know, um it's it, it, no point in wasting your time trying to predict markets because you'll get it wrong. And all around the world, you've got very, very smart guys, much smarter than, than myself, also trying to predict market crashes every day. And you get these things in your inbox every day. Markets are crashing, markets are crashing. You just ignore them because you do not know. Who would have said that in the middle of April this year, with this COVID pandemic exploding on the front pages and people are dying and companies are being shut down, that, that that would be the turning point of a fantastic bull market since the beginning of April. Some sectors are up 50%, some are up 100%. It made fools of most analysts and predictions. I don't spend my, a lot of time. I look at valuations and I look at trends. And as Candace has said, there are certain sectors of the world economy making pockets of money at the moment, including bi- uh, tech, biotech. When you've seen all the big tech companies reporting their results, Facebook has come through, Amazon has come through. So make sure that you're exposed to that market. Avoid sectors that are being punished like property and and shipping and and tourism and airlines and that kind of stuff. But uh, to predict markets is an absolute waste of time.
1: Thank you. Now, Bruce says he knows Magnus's view on Alan Grand Orbis funds. What does Candice feel about these funds? I want to know if I should hang on after 10 years of underperformance.
0: Yeah, it's been a difficult time for um, Alan Gray's offshore arm Orbis. You need to look at their process and their philosophy, and they are deep value players. What that means is that they are looking for beaten down stocks, and they're waiting for something to trigger a value unlock. So traditionally their performance has been very lumpy. It comes through um, in very small patches. So investing is, is not a linear business. Um, your, your performance doesn't compound monthly. If you get your performance when you get your performance. Um, what I might do with the Orbis funds right now is I can see that they're starting to at least break even on a, a sort of one, three and five year basis. Um, if you have lost faith in their process and their philosophy and you have somewhere better to invest, then probably roundabout now would be the time to be um, switching out of them.
1: Thank you, Magnus. Maybe you could just update uh, our attendees on your view on those funds because not everybody knows you know, your your previous points about those fund funds. And, of course, your view might have changed.
2: You, you know, my views are, we're, were more than just, you know, it's just a commentary. that You know, here is a fund that is highly rated, no doubt, been around for a very long time. It is humanely big. But for 10 years, it has not beaten its benchmark. And and in the last five years, uh, substantially so, yet, and, and I, I sense it's a South African thing, South African advisors just chucking money at Ellen at Gray's truck uh, or on the basis that it's a brand name company. So people or the investors don't really question um, the, the merits or they no, that's fine. Ellen Gray is fantastic. As opposed to me coming with, to them with a company called uh, The Tabletop Investments and it's got a great record but it doesn't have that public, um, you know, appeal and, and people don't talk about it, but at Brighton, it's just a commentary on the investment industry itself where sometimes investors fall into the trap of brand name investing and not worrying about the returns. Where you, When you come to a client and say, listen, there's got this other fund, might be smaller fund. It's doing fantastically well. Which one do you want? They'll say, I'll take the Ellen Gray Fund. It's just a great marketing on the part of Ellen Gray. I agree with Canis. If you have money in it, I don't think I'll pull it out, but I will also build other funds around it. More specialist funds, more momentum driven funds. As Canis has said, it's, been, it's a value style investing and value style has been out of favour since 2010, around about there and quite badly so and but the momentum driven stocks have just outperformed everything in sight so what i then sit down and have to keep and question on behalf of my clients can you commit money to a fund manager that has a very specific mandate and doesn't change when the market has changed and we've seen lots of experience over time where fund managers don't want to change they keep on saying the market is wrong we are right We saw it with Neil Woodford in the UK where he was a superstar investor for many years and then when his style went out of favour, he kept on saying the market's wrong, I'm right and eventually it led to the closure of a very large investment company. So it's just little funny things about the investment industry uh, and it's got very little to do with investment returns.
1: Thank you. Rodney wants to know, should I cash in my local equity unit trusts and reinvest in RAND-denominated global equity unit trusts, or should I move the funds offshore and invest directly there? So quite a broad question. Uh, Candice, would you like to start off with that one?
0: So it's difficult to give advice. Um, I don't know how much money he has. I would definitely be diversifying. Um, I'm not saying everyone should actually take their money offshore because we've spoken about the costs. Uh, if it's a very large amount and the first million you can take offshore without any problems through SARS up to 10 million after that you can get a tax clearance and you can take the money offshore and 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 if it is large amounts like that it might be better because it can be more cost effective and more tax effective Um, depending on where he's invested locally because all equity funds are not equal he may be wanting to diversify some of that portion of it maybe 50 percent of it into um, offshore denominated funds that he can access locally.
1: Thank you. And uh, Magnus, what is your view on that? Uh, we were chatting earlier this week and you said there are ways that people can diversify without putting more money on the table. So would this be one of those situations?
2: Yes, it would be. If, if Let's assume you've got a couple of hundred thousand Rand in, in, in local equity funds and you're not happy and you want to get into offshore funds. Or into offshore asset swap funds you can make use of your capital tax exemption of 40,000 per tax year and make those changes you can do some changes now next change in, in, in uh, March in the next tax year and to minimize the pain but there's not going to be a lot of pain unless you've been in the market for a very long time so capital gains tax is one issue that you need to consider and if you don't know how it works, you can see a financial advisor, they'll work it out for you. So you can do internal changes in your portfolio quite easily. And if you'll be making a loss, that's even better because there's no capital gains tax. You just switch it into an offshore fund. We've got some very good local asset swap funds and they take the money offshore on your behalf. And the returns have been very, very good between 13 and 17% per annum then as we previously discussed with uh, uh, you can make changes to your retirement annuities you can make changes in your preservation funds etc but you need to understand a little bit what is available in that product range and what other funds are there and then you can make changes in there and then lastly if you have money in RAs or a combination of RAs and you're older than 55 and you haven't pulled out any money you can and I strongly recommend that you consider pulling your money out of these badly performing RAs, get your one third out into your hands and the balance goes into a living annuity where you can go up to 100% offshore. And those are all the variables that you can play with. um, And a lot of people don't know how it works. You can combine three, four, five, six retirement annuities all into one. And you only have one living annuity. You can probably get costs down. uh, You can go to a cheaper LISP. You can get ETF funds and you can get your money offshore. It all depends. The investment world has changed in the last 10 to 15 years for the better in the sense that there are many more fantastic products available for the local investor at lower fees.
1: Thank you. And then Pierre wants to know what what cash options are best? And he specifically wanted to know from Candice. Sorry, what was the question, what cash? What cash options are best, so i'm assuming he's wanting to know is now a good time maybe to put your money in a money market fund, perhaps uh, following on from magnus 's uh, slide there showing that abysmal performance uh, is cash maybe a good place to be and yeah, where? So,
0: so cash has you know the, with we've had i think it's two point seven five percent reduction in interest rates since um January, so cash is not the attractive option that it was before. That's pure money market or kind of cash in the bank. What you would need to be doing is moving up the duration curve um, and that's playing sort of more in the bond space and the short data bond space. So there are a lot of funds out there, they're called multi-asset income funds, um, where your portfolio manager is looking at the whole spectrum of um, cash instruments that are available. And they're trying to increase that yield so whereas in the, over the last couple of years we've had those funds giving you sort of in excess of 8% per year that's not guaranteed the only thing that's guaranteed is the interest rate in your bank account or a money market fund um so there is a little bit of risk in these funds but they've been giving you 8% but now that we've seen you know our bond market is um Is slightly under threat and interest rates have come down so we're probably looking at more sort of six to seven percent in those multi-asset income funds and that is still an option the other thing you need to remember though is that cash is not a long-term investment strategy traditionally cash doesn't outperform inflation and that's what all of us the first hurdle we're all trying to get over with investing is just to maintain the purchasing power of our money so you want to get over inflation then you want to grow it and that's where the wealth creation comes from So sitting for long periods in cash or fixed interest assets isn't a long-term strategy, despite the fact that we've had this terrible five years.
1: Thank you. Uh, Magnus, what what is your view on that? How, How can people boost their return in their retirement annuity if they're stuck in there?
2: Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, we've been using these hybrid enhanced income funds, we call them, which is a mixture of you know, shorter dated instruments and and, and and so on. I mean, only two, three or four fund managers who are good in that space, who've got a proven track record. And, you know, with the returns are being between eight and one or two cases, closer to 10, that's come down and there's a bit more volatility, which is not necessarily risk, but it's infinitely better, especially for larger amounts of money. Just to put it in there, the costs are low. And you've got access to your money because if you have large amounts of money and you want a really nice interest rates, you have to tie up your money for five years. And I don't like that. I mean, five years is is a lifetime in my in my in my view. And so this enhanced income space um is a very nice space and it has worked very successfully. You could access to your money, you can make regular draws if you need the cash, but your returns have been between eight and ten percent. And I agree with Candace, that's where I would look for that kind of uh, investment
1: thank you graham says the panel is strongly advocating for investing offshore assuming you're able to take 10 million rand offshore how would you invest straight into equity or phased in over a number of months once the funds are transferred
2: I would, I would be, uh, right now i would take the money offshore i think the rand is under pressure a little bit and within, once it's there, I would put it into a multi asset income fund, uh, and there are a host of them, and then just um, do your research thoroughly and, and understand what your options are. Don't rush into something that you don't fully understand. So I'll have a two step approach if I've got 10 million Rand, which I don't have. Um, my ex wife has got it, but uh, uh, I would first get it into a, an, a, an instrument that gives me 2 or maybe 3% and then i'll thoroughly look at it and maybe then do it in chunks i'll take two million here and wait a month or two two million there until i'm familiar with the process and uh, that's the kind of approach that kind of works over time because you must know that if you take money offshore it is not for short term it is a very long-term investment and my experience has been and i'm talking about having doing investment offshore for like 20 years to 25 years People never bring their money back unless they really have to, so it's a very long-term investment. So make sure you get into the right funds at the right time.
1: Thank you. And then we've got a lot of questions about gold and silver, and we've seen uh, gold's been on a bit of a run. Candice, is it a good time to look at getting some exposure? Was it too late?
0: I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to tell you what I think about gold. So. The gold price has gone through $1,950 recently. It's at an all-time high. We've seen our gold miners running. If you, if you look at the funds that are investing in gold, they've done extraordinarily well, both locally and globally. And silver has done the same thing. Um, silver has more of an industrial use attached to it, so it makes it, um, it, it, makes it feel more of a defensive uh, metal if you're wanting to be get, getting into it. What this gold run is telling us is that people are running scared. So gold runs when there's fear in the market. And people start seeing it as a safe haven asset. They start seeing it as a hedge against inflation. Um, And if you have institutional managers even start to talk about gold, there obviously are those risks in the system. And somebody asked a question earlier about whether the market was going to pull back. Looking at the gold price, it would indicate that there is a lot of risk in the system. I think holding some gold in your portfolio is not a bad thing. 100% in gold is not a good thing because it has run so hard. And maybe you need to wait for a little bit of a pullback. You also need to make the decision about whether you're going to the physical metal, so you're tracking the actual gold price, and there's a new gold ETF for that, which is very easily accessible. Or you're going to go into the actual gold miners where there's a lot more leverage. Remember, your gold mining costs are fixed, and so every time the gold price goes up, that's just more margin for you. So those would be the decisions that you need to make. And then once again, whether you're going to invest globally or locally um, in, in um, gold miners.
1: Thank you. Magnus, what is your view on gold and how to get exposure to that?
2: You know, the gold, the gold price and the whole gold industry has always been, you know, kind of like a conspiracy theory. And, and the gold price is manipulated and it's only a fringe investment. But what is very telling is that, uh, I think a week ago, Goldman Sachs, which is really, you know, the vampire squid of investment companies, as someone called it. I mean, we're talking about a substantial financial institution saying they reckon gold will go to $3,000. Now, to, to me, that was a game changer. It's not these fringe guys trying to scare people and investing into their products or their gold products, but this is a serious financial institution saying, there are some weaknesses structurally in the, in, the, in the world economy. They say gold can go to $3,000. And on, the, on that basis, I think people must consider gold. What, what, what the comment I'd like to make about gold and more particularly gold itself, bullion, Krugerrands. There is an investment that, I mean, we used to produce the most gold in the world until about 20 years ago. Our economy has been built on gold. But you're not allowed to include physical gold in your retirement, although it's been the best asset class for 15 to 20 years. So we, we, we need to ask our regulators these questions. Why can't I put some of my money into gold, which has been fantastic. I mean, in Australia, where they have these super annuity stuff where you can select what you want into this fund, they've got a much more liberal approach to investing. They're saying, it's your money, uh, uh, Candice. It's your money, Jackie. Do what you want. In South Africa, we've got this journalistic approach. People tell you what to do and how to invest your money. And 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 I always raise this point. What about gold? I want to buy gold, but I can't do it. So I have to do it in my, in my private capacity. But to end my long rambling, yes, um, physical gold, Krugerrands, has been a great investment. If you can stomach the volatility of the gold share market itself, um, once again, I'm agreeing with Candace uh, There's been a great run in the market uh, maybe a pullback but my final point is i mean six months ago there was a huge hullabaloo about old mutual who wanted to close down their gold fund for various reasons and, and and take that asset into one of their general equity funds and then a lot of people protested so they kept it open that has been the best performing fund in south africa in the last year i mean you have to ask questions why did they want to close it so um I like gold. Timing is a little bit dicey at the moment, but if I had some spare cash, I'll be buying physical gold. I'll be buying some more Krugerrands or even ETFs.
1: Thank you. And then we're we're coming to a close. So a final question for you both. And this is a a theme in a a number of questions. uh, And this is from Shirley. For parents who are over 80 years old looking for increased income from their investments, would investing offshore be recommended? So in other words, let's get a bit of a, turbo-charge our return so that we can enjoy our money while we still can. Um, Candice, I think your your line is not looking good there. Magnus, would you like to answer that question?
2: You know, it depends on the view of, of the currency itself and going forward. And, and then, of course, the fact that overseas your, re, your income yields are not great. In fact, they're zero. Um, I've been listening to your uh, webinars on august and that that's attracted my interest and that might be an option where you invest in physical building in the united states which houses doctors and specialists and that rent pays your rent in south africa so that is an option otherwise you just invest in an offshore portfolio and every year you bring back some money um to um to spend your way in south africa what we have recommended at our company we uh, open a debit card in Mauritius for people they just transfer ten thousand dollars or whatever the amount into that card stays in dollars and they walk around here say paying with their debit card at Woolworths pick can pay and that's the strategy that I've been using personally and a lot of my clients and they've done quite nicely out of that.
1: Thank you and uh, Candice uh, do you have any comments on that question about what do you do uh, if you're 80 and you're looking for increased income?
0: It, also, it all depends on the amount of money that you have, because um, if you don't have a lot of time, investing takes time. If you're investing your money offshore, you are bringing that RAND volatility in. Um, and, you know, the RAND isn't always a one-way bet. Um, there are times when it does actually strengthen, and then your portfolio is not going to look so great. So if you can take a small amount, maybe 20% of your investment offshore, you would be needing to look at putting it in equities, because as Magnus said, there is pretty much no yield there. And there you'd be wanting to invest in quality stocks. So you don't want these high growth things. You're looking at large multinationals with good balance sheets, strong cash flows. They pay dividend yields so that you have some defensiveness in that portfolio. And then the money that you have locally, you'd be needing to move up that duration curve. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much to Magnus Haystick of Brenthurst Wealth
1: Management, and also to Candace Payne for joining us this week. Um, and thank you to all the attendees uh, for your questions. And we'll see you this time next week. If you have any questions or suggestions, there's the
0: email address. Um, yeah, and have a good weekend. Thank you. Okay, uh, goodbye.